0: You could open up your Bibles to 1 John chapter 3. I'm going to be looking at verses 4 through 10. 1 John chapter 3, verses 4 through 10. Hear the word of the Lord. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins. Lucas, can you turn it down just a little bit, sir? To take away sins, and in him. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So right there in verse 4, everyone who who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Right there in verse 4 Uh, What struck me as I was preparing for this sermon is that phrase, lawlessness. It's an interesting expression. It doesn't show up overly often in our Bibles, and I was curious of why it was here. Let's think about that word, lawlessness. Of course, we hear the word law, and we have that lessness. It's kind of like faithlessness. The lessness means the lack there of faith. If some of you might be interested in Greek, some of you not, but the Greek word for law is namas, And this word is anamas, which is that alpha-privative, which is like atheist, which means the lack of law. No law. Just like atheism is the lack of the belief in God. Now, this expression is somewhat rare. That's why I caught my attention. It only shows up ten times in the entire Bible. And to show you how rare that is, compare that to the term law. The term law shows up 542 times, the word lawlessness only shows up 10 times. The word law shows up throughout the New Testament and the Old Testament, and the word lawlessness only shows up 10 times exclusively in the New Testament. And so since it's a very rare word and only shows up a few times, I thought we might do a brief survey of this word, and maybe we will discover some insightful things. Hopefully we will. I believe we will. Uh, of that will help us understand what it means in our passage before us. So, it shows up ten times in the New Testament. Three of those times come in the words of Jesus. Six of those times happen in Paul's mouth. And one time is in the passage that you're looking at right here from John. So, a quick survey of this term in the mouth of Jesus. Jesus uses it three times. The first time he uses it is in Matthew chapter 7. Matthew 7, that famous terrifying verse where the people say... Lord, Lord, did we not do all these various things? Were we not faithful members of such and such church and this and that? And he says, what? Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness, for I have never known you. Jesus also describes the people, the Pharisees, in Matthew chapter 23 with this word lawlessness. He says to them, you are cursed hypocrites. You are whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones. You are full of all uncleanliness and all lawlessness. And then the last time we find it in our blessed Lord Jesus' mouth is in Matthew chapter 24, where he predicts the end with those famous words, lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. In Paul, six times, we see this expression. He says in Romans chapter 6, he says, you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness. In 2 Corinthians 6.14, Paul says, What partnership does righteousness have with its opposite, lawlessness? In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, which I preached through uh, a couple years ago now, he talks about the man of lawlessness, and he talks about the mystery of the spirit of lawlessness that's already at work among our members. And in Titus 2.14, we find this amazing passage by Our brother Paul, he says, God gave himself up to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. And then finally, we have it in our passage right here, 1 John 3, that all sin is lawlessness, and everyone practicing sinning also practices lawlessness. So from this brief survey of these 10 usages, We find that the unbeliever is full of lawlessness. It is parallel to the concept of darkness and evil and wickedness and uncleanliness and sin and impurity and death and all of these various things. It's the opposite of goodness and righteousness and purity and holiness and all of the sort. Lawlessness, in short, is a violation of God's law. It is living as if one is either above the law or that there simply is no law that one has to obey. Lawlessness is to, well, to be lawless, to live completely divorced of God's law. All sin, as our passage in First John three four says, sin is lawlessness. And that's of course right. Without the law, there is no sin. Paul says in Romans five thirteen, sin is not counted where there is no law. And Romans four fifteen says, for the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. I think about this. You can't violate the law if there is no law, right? Nobody can say that you have violated a statute that simply doesn't exist. Man's opinion is not law. Only law is law, of course, and you cannot violate law. You cannot be a sinner unless there's a law to violate in the first place. And so in a profound way, if we sinners can simply just get from underneath the law, we can no longer be viewed as sinners, that's our rescue. As long as we're under the law, we can violate the law and be punished to the law. But if you can somehow get yourself out of the law, then you can no longer be a violator of that law and you will be free. Right? If we can get out from the United States law, the United States cannot sentence us with any crimes because we're no longer under their jurisdiction. So how do we get from underneath God's law? Because unlike the United States, we can just leave the United States and go somewhere else. Maybe they'll chase us there too. But generally speaking, maybe we can give up our citizenship and somehow find ourselves no longer under the purview of the United States or even your county or whatever. But how do we get from under the law? Again, this is the gospel. Romans 3 says this. Romans three nineteen. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. So that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no sin, no human being will be justified in the sight of since through the law comes knowledge of sin. No human being under the law, whichever human being is born under the law, will be justified by that law. In fact, the law of God only is to reveal your sinful condition. You look at God's law, you look at yourself, you don't change God's law, you don't think God is not going to hold you to God's law, but you realize you have violated God's law, and that's supposed to shut your mouth and make you realize, I cannot be saved through The Ten Commandments, I cannot be saved by the moral law. I cannot be saved by the two great commandments, love God and love your neighbor. I cannot be saved under the law. The law, through the law, comes knowledge of sin. Romans chapter 7, verse 9 says this, I was once alive apart from the law. And when the commandment came, sin came alive, and I died. Now some people try to take this as kind of a Pelagian passage, that suggests that you know little children, or you know however he was, people under thirteen or fourteen or whatever it is, they're simply alive until one day they come to understand the law. But that's not what he's saying. He, he wasn't actually alive at all. The point is he was alive in his own perceptions. I was once alive in my own thoughts. I once believed that I was a righteous kind of chap, a righteous kind of guy, a guy who wasn't too bad. But then the law came, which always there. But now I was confronted with the law, specifically the commandment not to covet. And I realized that the law had to do with more than just outward conformity, but the heart. And I realized I was condemned. I thought I was alive. And I became dead. The law kills. The law kills. The law, in one sense, it's a divine executor of self-righteous people who think that they can be right with God through themselves. The law kills us. But, of course, this does not mean that the law is bad. Because Paul says in this very chapter, that that which is good then bring death to me. By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. So the law of God is not bad. We're bad. The law of God is good. But unfortunately, we who are sold under the flesh cannot obey the law, which is spiritual, and we die. So here's what we have to do. Since we cannot fulfill the law, we need to get out from underneath the law so that the law no longer has its claim on us. If we can revoke our citizenship to the law, then we can be free to come to another and to be saved. This is the gospel. Since we failed the law, then if God judges us by the law, we'll be condemned by the law. So what God did was he met the law for you and said, come up underneath the law, come up underneath my son, and I'll give you grace, and he'll get the law. That's the gospel. The gospel is this. You failed to test. God passed and says, come take my score and I'll take yours. That's exactly what Paul says. That's why he says in Romans chapter 8, right after Romans 7, there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Christ did what we could not do, not because there was a problem with the law, and Jesus proved that. Jesus showed that the law was fine and good and righteous. And that's why he was able to fulfill the law and to earn that righteousness on our account. There's nothing wrong with the law. Do you remember when Jesus said to the rich young ruler, and the rich young ruler asked Jesus, What must I do to obtain eternal life? He says, You know the law. He said that, right? Why would he say that if the law could not bring about any righteousness at all? It wouldn't make any sense. Why would he point to something that even hypothetically could not save the man? Of course, that would be absurd. Jesus pointed to him to something that could have saved him if he could fulfill it, but he could never fulfill it. And that was the whole point of the conversation. And that's why when Jesus confronted him with the law of coveting, he was walked away sad. Because he tried to be saved in and of himself. You cannot be saved by yourself, but you can be saved by calling to Jesus, who fulfilled that law for you, and so that you can get underneath from up underneath the law. We can be done with the law. The law can be something that is in the rearview mirror that you're driving away as you're going to your new location, to heaven. Now, some of you might be thinking that sounds a little antinomian to simply trash the law and keep going and keep on driving with Jesus. Sounds a little antinomian. And it does, but here's the good thing. If you preach the real gospel, you're saying antinomian. And the reason we know that is because when Paul preached the real gospel, he sounded antinomian, and people complained to him that he was, in fact, teaching antinomianism. But we're not teaching that, and I'll tie that in a second. But the truth is, we are to, in fact, get from up underneath the law, be free from the law, so that we can belong to another. And I won't read this passage for the sake of time. But in Romans chapter 7, he gives this analogy, and maybe you guys are familiar with this. He talks about a woman being married to a husband. And as long as she's married to him, she is bound to him. And she can't simply just go and marry someone else without being considered an adulteress. And he says here in Romans 7, 14, Likewise, my brothers, you have also died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another. So as long as her husband lives, she can't belong to another. But if her husband dies, she's free to remarry. So too... The amazing truth is that we die so that we can live to another, that we can belong to Jesus, that we can be saved. We have died to the law, but that doesn't mean that such freedom is to be used as an abuse to live like the devil. But rather, we are to use this freedom to serve God and to bear much fruit. This is the gospel. We die from the law. We can't keep the law. All sinning is lawlessness. We cannot just fix ourselves, so we have to get from underneath the law, we get into Christ and he fulfills the law for us. And then, as Christians, now we're free and we use that freedom to live holy and just lives. Now we can be Christians and now we can fulfill, outwardly at least, we can outwardly be living in conformity with God's law. So the question is though, in our text, because this is the gospel and this is the truth, but, but why does John use this term lawlessness here in First John 3, 4? We, we've seen a lot of these passages in Romans chapter 7, where in Romans chapter 6, he uses the term lawlessness. It's a very important concept, law, 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 all throughout Romans. But yet, John, this isn't Romans, this is, of course, John. And he uses the term lawlessness. And why does he even bother to point out sin is lawlessness? Is it just a simple, fun fact that he's giving us? Or is there actually some point that he's leading us to of the reason he 's using that rare word, and I think that there is, in fact a reason that Paul that John, excuse me, is using this term lawlessness. and it goes back to our survey of that word lawlessness. Remember, it was used nine other places other than this passage. Three of those places, this rare term lawlessness, was used in association specifically with the end times. recall Jesus in Matthew 24 says that at the end times lawlessness will increase. And he's talking about the reign and terror of the Antichrist. And under that area, and under that reign, then lawlessness will increase. Paul picks up on this same term, seemingly reflecting on his master Jesus, and describes the Antichrist as the man of lawlessness. And then he tells us that that spirit of lawlessness is already at work. And so to me, this is statistically significant. I'm looking over at Ray, the mathematician, so... Maybe he'll agree with me or not, but I feel 33%, I think I'm doing my math right there, of this rare term being used to eschatology is statistically significant. And I think that that's actually what's going on here, that John is playing off of this point. This term lawlessness is associated, in other words, with the reign and terror of the Antichrist. And so what I think John is doing here is telling us, he said in, he said in the last chapter, you heard that Antichrist is coming, the man of lawlessness. But I want to tell you, there are many Antichrists that have already come. The mystery, the spirit of the Antichrist is already here. And I think this is something very similar he's doing in our passage. He's telling us, you know, you you Christians who are concerned about eschatology, you know that the, the days of lawlessness are up ahead. But I want you to know the days of lawlessness are actually right here. We're already in the days of lawlessness. When you sin, you're already manifesting the spirit of Antichrist, the spirit of the mystery of lawlessness is already at work in you. Now, I think what he's really doing is, to give you an analogy, is imagine a Jew talking to another Jew and saying, you know, your behavior reminds me of what Nazi behavior was like. You can imagine a Jew being struck by that statement and thinking, me, a Jew?, Acting like a Nazi? It would be a great insult. And I think that's kind of what's going on here, is that what John is doing is reminding us that since all sin is lawlessness, then this behavior is Antichrist behavior. Our sin is a manifestation of the behavior and the types of behavior that we're going to see that the Antichrist is going to bring upon the world. And this should shock a Christian, because think about this. As a Christian, what kind of behavior should we be manifesting? Should we be manifesting the behavior of the spirit of lawlessness? The behavior that will ultimately, I don't want to say incarnate itself, but ultimately manifest itself in a man of lawlessness that goes around wreaking havoc and devastation and destruction among Christians? No. But rather, we should be manifesting behavior of the spirit of Christ, we are the image of Christ and should manifest his behavior. We're not in the spirit of the Antichrist and manifest his behavior. And I think that's really John's point here of bringing out that all sin is lawlessness. And I would argue with you also that's exactly what John goes on to tell us. Now look, look down to verse 5 and 6 of 1 John. 1 John 3, verse 5 and 6. You know that he, that's Christ, appeared in order to take away sins... And in him, there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. So the very next thing he talks about is what was the purpose of Jesus coming? The purpose of Jesus coming was to take away sin, to obliterate sin. He was the sin destroyer. He was going to be the one who was destroying Satan. And in Christ, the holy one, the pure one, the righteous one, there is no sin in him. Implication, verse 6, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. I want you to see the kind of the play on words here. In Christ, he's the pure and holy and righteous one. In him, there is no sin. So if you now in connection through Jesus, through faith, abide in him, you're not going to be a man of sin either. But you would be a man of righteousness because in him, there is no sin. And if you say you're in him, you don't keep on sinning either. And that's why he later on goes and says in that verse, no one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. God transforms us. God frees us from the law in order that we can be married to Christ. And in connection to Christ, we become righteous. We progressively grow in our sanctification and so that we bear more and more the image of Christ. And less and less the image of our old father, Adam, or the devil. We no longer act like Antichrist, but now we act like Jesus Christ. Christ. This is kind of like the old saying: the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. If we are Christians, we should reflect the image of Jesus Christ. That's why in First Peter one sixteen it says, "Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy." Just as Christ is holy, so you, as His children, should be holy. Just as God is holy, so too we, as children of God, should also be holy. Now, this isn't just some kind of proverbial truth. Yeah, you should be holy because God is holy. Yes, the apple doesn't fall. Far from the true, but it's an absolute, true, axiomatic reality. This truth is one that's not general with exceptions, but is always true and has no exceptions. And we can see that in verse 7. Look down to verse 7. Little children, let no one deceive you. Now, whenever you see that phrase in the Bible, let no one deceive you, you've got to open your ears up really, really wide. Because you have to recognize that this is something that we are prone to be deceived by. You're not prone to be deceived by bad lies, but things that are uh, convincing and things that we're tempted to fall into, that is what we need to protect ourselves. So whatever he's going to say here is going to be something that people try to deceive us about. And what is that? Let's continue the verse. John, first John 3, 7. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever, practice, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. He cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not from God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Again, this is not just proverbial truth, but it's absolute reality. Also, this passage helps to clarify what he means by the person who is born again, the person who's a child of God, the person who's in Christ, does not keep on sinning. Now, I don't know about uh, all of your translations, but maybe there's a KJV or something like that uh, in here. It doesn't have the word keep on sinning, but it says sin. Whoever abides in him does not sin. Now, the the confusion often comes in, with sometimes when we have that, is they think, well, wait a second. Christians sin, right? So what does it mean I can't sin if Christians sin? Even in 1 John 1.9, he says that we can, if we sin, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So it often confuses people, and sometimes you see some uh, particular independent brothers or whatever talk about that the spirit man cannot sin. And they'll say, well, when you sin, that's just the flesh. That's the old man sinning, but strictly speaking, you're the new man, and you cannot sin because John says that the new man cannot sin. That's actually not what John says, Right? I think the ESV here is more accurate, and the context tells us what's really going on here. As he's not saying that you can't sin at all, but we all sin, and we all fall in many ways. And every day we're to go back to God and pray the Lord's Prayer and ask for forgiveness for our sins. But the idea here is keep on sinning, make a practice of sinning, continuously sin. That is something that the Christian cannot do. Why? Because God's seed abides in us. Because this is what Christ did. He came to destroy the works of the devil. The devil conquered man and caused us to be fallen and enslaved us so that we would now be slaves of sin. And Jesus came to destroy all of the works of the devil. Our damnation he came to destroy. And even the enslavement to sin he came to destroy. He came to destroy your addiction to unrighteousness to free you from slavery to sin. And now to make you a slave of righteousness. All of that is the purview of Jesus Christ's work in other words, we may be justified by faith alone, but that justification is never to be alone. Christ didn't come just to save you and leave you as you are. But Christ came to save you and to transform you and to bring you from one image of glory to the other. The last time I was in this pulpit, we talked about theosis. I don't know if I used that term, but we talked about glorification right before this of how we'll be transformed into the image of his son, which is usually called Theosis, or you can even think of Christosis, to be transformed into the image of Christ. Well, when does this theosis begin? It begins at justification. It begins at God doesn't just declare you righteous, but he dips you into his Son through baptism of the Holy Spirit, of course. And this is a process where he's adopting you, the spirit of adoption, transforming you into the image of Christ from one image of glory to the other. Another theosis of being transformed to the image of God begins at justification and capsates, climaxes at glorification. But it's the entire process. He's moving you along. You're being transformed. This is why he says that if you say that God's seed abides in you... You can't keep practicing on sinning because you're not then moving toward the direction of his ultimate goal. And rather, you're revealing that God's seed is not in you. He's not bringing you from one image of glory to another. And you are not been predestined to be conformed to the image of his son at all. Again, this is not suggesting here that a Christian cannot sin. But it does suggest that you cannot remain in sin, unrepentant, continuously. And this is why, as we've been talking about in Sunday school... That sometimes, as uh, Christians, we need to go through church discipline. Or as like Stan likes to say, we always need to go through church discipline. This is God's means and his work in us to continue to grow us into holiness. And the Christian will respond correctly to this church discipline and repent of his sins and continue to be transformed into Jesus Christ. It's very, very clear. Look at verse 9 again. No one born of God makes the practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him. He cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. If you've been born of God, you cannot keep sinning. And if you do, you have not been born of God. But sometimes, as we were talking about church discipline, sometimes even us who have been born again start straying off like sheep. And the shepherd comes and grabs his little hook and brings us back. Often through the means of each other, that's why we need to reprove each other. That's why we need to have the means of grace. So that as we start to sway, the shepherd comes and brings us back. And again, alluding to our conversations on Sunday morning, this bringing us back often is just the preach word of God, form formable discipline. It's often as you come to church, you might be start your heart might be swaying. You might start be falling into sin. But just hearing God's word, being with God's people, singing his songs, taking communion, all of this brings you back so that you're preserved in your faith. Sometimes it must be a little bit more extreme than that, though. Sometimes you've got to be chased down. This is when a good brother and sister comes to you and says, Brother, sister, you're sinning. Come on back. Come on back home. Again, these statements, no one who's born of God does not keep on sinning, does not suggest that we don't need church discipline, but it suggests that through church discipline, all the way from its formable just hearing God's word all the way up to its corrective measures are the means to keep God's people as God's people, and God's people will respond correctly to his discipline. Verse 10. By all of this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Now notice that. We've been talking a lot about righteousness, but it's not just righteousness It's not just treating God the way you ought to treat God. It's not just worshiping God, having true beliefs about God. But it's also about loving your neighbor, loving your brother. And this is something we all have to examine ourselves continuously and ask ourselves, are we loving our brother? We don't want to be people who are jaded people, who only have negative things to say about other people or people that say, I'm just about me and I'm not concerned about you. That's not the spirit of Christ. That's the spirit of selfishness and the spirit of evil. The spirit of Christ, if Christ was only focused on him, we'd all be still dead in our sins. Isn't that true? If Christ was only self-focused, my glory, all about me, don't care about you, we'd all be dead in our sins. But God so loved us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And he said to us, you imitate me in this. Just as I love all people and pour down my goodness... On the righteous and the wicked, so you love all people and pour your kindness on all people. But even more so, the brothers of the Lord, the sisters of the Lord, we need to make sure that we're getting out of our comfort zones and making sure that we are showing love to each other because just as you cannot live like the devil and claim to be a child of God, so you cannot refuse to love your neighbor and specifically love your brother and claim to be a child of God. This is not the mark of a believer. This is the mark of an unbeliever. And oftentimes, you'll see people start going off the rails, and you can start thinking, this person might be heading toward apostasy when you start hearing in their words, hatred for believers. I've seen this multiple times. People start becoming critics of God's bride. All they have to say is negative things about Christians. They start despising Christians. When you see that, watch out. That person's probably going off the rails and might be heading to death. And make sure in yourself that that's not you. There's nothing wrong with seeing the faults of other believers. But be their support system. Be someone who's seeing their faults and you're grieved. Not just a slanderous spirit about how much better you are than they are. We should love each other and love the people of God. And our hearts should break when we see people sinning. We should not slander them. We should pray for them. We should not ignore them. We should reach out to them. Even people who are hard to love. We can all love our friends. We can all love the people like us. This is tested when young people love old people, when old people love young people, when people who are high class love trashy people, and so forth and so on. This is shown when the difficult people are loved despite them being difficult. We need to love one another. Last thing I want to bring out here is notice the extreme dichotomy in verse 10. Notice there are only two types of people. You're either a child of God or you're a child of the devil. There is no middle ground. No middle ground. There's no, you know, seeker, religious person kind of, sort of, all paths lead to God. No. You're either a child of God, you're the child of the devil. The most righteous, holy, whatever you want to call it, Muslim, Mormon, Jehovah Witness, Hindu, is a child of the devil. That's the reality. Your atheist neighbor, who's the greatest person in the world, is a child of the devil, or you can be a Christian, so united to Christ, who is a child of God. Jesus was not playing around when he said, "No one will come to the Father except by me." And he was talking about hard teachings, teachings that were counterintuitive. Who can accept these things? The people of God can accept these things, right? The world says no. Pluralism. This is bigoted talk. This is ethnocentrism, and everything of the sort. But this is just the Word of God. This is exactly what it says here. You're either a child of God. Or your child, the devil. You either have allegiance to Jesus or you have allegiance to Satan. And the most terrifying thing is this you will either inherit Christ's kingdom or you will be sent to the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. That's the reality. You can either be with your father, the devil, or you can be with your father, Jesus Christ. And the choice is yours. Believe, trust, rest in him. Believe not what your eyes say, but believe what your eyes see in God's word. The two categories. We have to recognize this. We have to believe this. Again, we don't want to send our neighbors to hell, but we have to realize their fate so that we can properly reach out to them. If you go pretending that your nice neighbor is, in fact, not a child of the devil, you might be deceived by them. You might not have your guard up and your protection, and they might harm you spiritually. But even worse, you might fail to evangelize them because you think that they're okay because they're your nice neighbor. They're the people you play pickleball with. They're the people that you laugh at work and play board games with, or whatever else. There's nothing wrong with having friends that are unbelievers, right? Because remember, you were once a child of the devil too. This is not a cuss word. This is a reality. child of the devil is somebody who has allegiance to the devil and is going where the devil goes. And that's why we have to rescue them. That's why we have to preach the gospel for them. That's why we have to do everything we can to see these people saved because we want them to be children of God like us through the grace of Jesus Christ. Please join me in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father God, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you, Lord, that despite us being children of the devil you have predestined us to be children of God. Lord, we thank you on that path. We thank you that we're being transformed from glory to glory. We thank you that you didn't just justify us and leave us here to be unrighteous and evil and haters of men and haters of your church. But you, you put us in your son. You regenerated us. You gave us a new heart that would love you, that would obey your commandments, that would love each other. And I pray that, Lord, we would do that. I pray that we would not view church discipline as some negative word. Something that we don't need, only bad people need. But realize that we all need that, Lord. We all need to be disciplined by you, that you are a loving Father who disciplines us all. You discipline us under your word. You discipline us through exhortation. You discipline us through sending out your shepherds, sending out all of us, Lord, to go and call each other out in a loving and kind way to bring us back. Help us to be people who will listen to your spirit through your people. Preserve us to the end, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.